to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 17, verse 1, as we follow along with today's lesson. The 17th chapter begins with verse 28 of chapter 16 where Jesus declares, Verily I say unto you, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. And after six days Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto the Lord, or said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you will... Let's make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid, And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And so as he had promised, there were some of them there who would not taste of death until they had seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then he chose three of them, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be distinguished by the Lord for special privileges. They seemed to be sort of the natural leaders that were singled out by the Lord for special honor. When Jesus was transfigured, These were the three. When he went into the house of Jairus to bring the daughter of Jairus back to life, it was these three that he allowed with him in the room. When in the Garden of Gethsemane, he had set the disciples down with the encouragement to pray and he took 
Peter, James, and John a little further into the garden with him and placed them closer to him. And so it was these three that were singled out by Jesus for special honor and special occasions. And he took them up into a high mountain apart. They had been in the area of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is right at the base of Mount Hermon. The highest mountain in that whole area goes up over 9,000 feet. There is a traditional site for the Mount of Transfiguration, which is Mount Tabor, right in the middle of the country. But that is more traditional than factual. Every indication would point to Mount Hermon as the place for the transfiguration. But again, you know, the place isn't that important. Those are the things that theologians argue over. But what difference does it really make? The fact is, is that Jesus was transfigured before them. They saw this transformation. They saw him as his face began to glow like the sun. And as you read the description of this transfiguration of Jesus, you're immediately reminded of the vision that Daniel had of the Lord in his glory, and also that John had in chapter 1 of the book of Revelation when he also saw Jesus in the glory, his glorified body, the glory of the kingdom. He was transfigured, face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as the light and glistening, sort of a... Uh, a kind of effervescent or fluorescent kind of a glistening light from his garments. And then there appeared Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now in Mark's gospel, we are told that they were talking with him of his death in Jerusalem. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus went into the mountain and while he was praying, he was transfigured. And Moses and Elijah appeared to him and they were talking together of his exodus, his decease, but the, the Greek word is exodus, his death, that would be accomplished in Jerusalem. It would have been interesting to have been privy to this conversation of Moses and Elijah with Jesus. They were very familiar with him. They had, Moses especially had written of him. And Moses had declared, There shall arise a prophet like unto myself, to him shall you give heed. And Moses stands for the law. His, his name is just associated 
with the law. You cannot think of the Torah or the law without thinking of Moses. You cannot think of Moses without thinking of the Torah, uh, the law. He is the representative figure. He is the one that was taken into a mountain and given the law by God and as the result of his close encounter with God, his face did shine. And so here the representative of the law, Moses. And then the rest of the Old Testament is in the area of the prophets of which Elijah stands at the head of the prophets. And so whenever you talk about Old Testament prophets, you think of this prophet Elijah, who stands more or less as the titular head of, of the prophets. So you have the law represented, you have the prophets represented, the prophets who talked of Jesus, who talked of his death, his being despised and rejected, and here these two representatives, God's law, God's prophets, they meet together with Jesus and are talking to him about his decease when he comes to Jerusalem. Then answered Peter and said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you will, Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter, the man of action. Good, let's do something. We are told that he really didn't know what to say. And you know, a good practice when you don't know what to say is to keep quiet. Say nothing. And so often... We find them saying, well, you know, feeling, well, I, I should say something. And so he is saying, well, let's build the three. It's good to be here. There are those experiences that we have with the Lord that are good. And we like to linger in that place. When there has been a special moving of God, when there's been a manifestation of God's presence and God's love among his people, on those special occasions when we have seen the Spirit of God just sort of move over the congregation and over our hearts, there's a reluctance, a hesitancy to leave. Just good to be here. Lord, let's just remain here. I like this. I like this peace, this serenity, this manifestation of your power and of your glory. Lord, let's just stay here. And we would like to stay on the mountaintop if possible. We'd like to stay in that state of, of spiritual ecstasy where we feel so close to the Lord. But there is a world out there that needs to be touched with his love. I am always in my mind seeking to escape from this corrupt world. 
The more I read and understand the things that are happening in the world in which we live, the more in my heart I feel like I would like to escape from this world. The more I read of pending legislation, the more I feel like I don't belong here. I'm a stranger to what's going on. I'd like to escape. And of course, I always think of some island out in the South Pacific somewhere. Good surf, of course. <laughs> Abounding in coconuts and bananas. and Just have an all-Christian community. Don't allow anybody on the island that doesn't love the Lord. There would be no police departments, no jails. We would all just be there and spending our time just loving the Lord, worshiping Him, doing what is necessary to provide the food for uh, the inhabitants, but just spending so much time and just worshiping the Lord. But when you go there, you think, oh man, this is, this is paradise. Don't want to leave. But there is a world out there that is in darkness. It is lost. And God didn't call us to go to cloistered areas, protected areas. But he called us to live in this corrupt world that is dominated by evil. And though these mountaintop experiences are wonderful, yet it's necessary that we come down into the world to face the powers of darkness that have the world in its grip. He wanted to build three tabernacles, stay right there. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. Now, while he was speaking, there came this bright cloud that overshadowed them. And behold, there was a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is the second time that God audibly spoke from heaven acknowledging and confirming that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. When Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended and lighted upon him, the voice of God spoke from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Here again, God acknowledging, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Notice that in both cases, there was an obedience of the Son to the will of the Father. In the case of the baptism, 
when John was more or less objecting, saying, I really am not worthy to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, for it becomes me to fulfill all righteousness. It was obedience. And the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now he's talking with Moses and Elijah concerning his death in Jerusalem. His submitting again to the will of the Father and in giving his life as a ransom for sin. And as they're talking about this death, again the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But in this point he adds, hear ye him. Now God spoke to man through the law. God then spoke to man through the prophets. Moses was the medium that brought to man the law of God. They heard Moses. After Moses and the law was given, then God sent the prophets to encourage the people to obedience to the law. And they prophesied of the coming judgments of God upon the nation for their forsaking of the law, but they prophesied of the future when God would provide the redemption for man. They heard Moses. They heard the prophets. But now God is speaking more clearly than ever before <clears throat> in and through his Son, and God is saying, Hear ye him. Not just the law anymore, not just the prophets, but hear ye him. And thus, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse ways spake to our fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his own dear Son. If you want to know the truth of God, if you want to know what God is really like, listen to Jesus. He is God's final revelation of himself to man. From the beginning, God was revealing himself in progressive revelation. But the final revelation is in Jesus Christ his only begotten Son. Hear ye him. And what did Jesus say concerning the law and the prophets? When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. And in these two are all the law and the prophets. So loving God loving each other. That's what it's all about. That's what God's will is for your life, that you love God and that you love one another. Now, what is so odious or horrible about that? Why is it that people get all uptight over these things? You talk about Christianity and, and they get all uptight. 
talk about Jesus, they get all uptight. They get upset. Why? What he said isn't, you know, I have no problem with that. Love God with all my heart. Love my neighbor as myself. That, that sounds ideal to me. I don't find myself getting all upset and yelling and ranting and raving over that command. Jesus said this is what it's all about. So the law and the prophets represented by Moses and Elijah, they're all fulfilled in Jesus. And in our loving God and loving one another. When the disciples heard this voice, they fell on their faces for fear. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, don't be afraid. And when they lifted up their eyes, Moses was gone, Elijah was gone, only Jesus was left. And so as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man is risen again from the dead. Keep this a secret. Don't tell anybody what you've just observed until I am risen from the dead. Now Peter, when he wrote his second epistle, there in chapter 1, speaks of it. He said that, verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The power and the coming. He came in his kingdom. They saw it. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. So Peter now is testifying that, hey, I was an eyewitness. I heard the voice. Now his disciples asked him, saying, why then say the scribes that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed, and likewise shall the Son of Man suffer of them. And then the disciples understood that he spake unto them, of John the Baptist. A mystery. In Malachi chapter 4, beginning with verse 5, the last prophecy of the Old Testament, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the promise of the coming of Elijah 
before the great notable day of the Lord. So when they saw Jesus coming in his kingdom there at the transfiguration, they were a little confused because of this prophecy that Elijah would first come. Now, the Jews were expecting Elijah. During the feast of the Passover, they always left an empty place at the table in anticipation for Elijah. It was a place that was set for Elijah. The door was open. They would go to the door to see if Elijah had shown up. It was a part of the traditional celebration of the Passover. And so that was a prophecy that was very familiar to all of them. And now we've seen you coming in your kingdom. How is it that the scripture said that Elijah must first come? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall first come and restore all things. Notice, this is future. Indeed, Elijah shall first come. In other words, there will be yet a coming of Elijah. He shall first come and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done to him whatsoever they would, and they understood that Jesus was talking about John the Baptist. And thus, a look at John the Baptist in the light of the prophecy of Elijah coming first. Before the birth of John the Baptist, his father Zacharias was ministering in the temple. When they would come to minister in the temple, it was usually a two-week kind of a commitment in service to God, and they would cast lots as to what duty the priest would have. And it was his lot, that is, when they cast the lots, the lot fell on Zacharias that he was to offer the incense before the altar of incense. In the holy place, there was the altar of incense that stood before the Holy of Holies. And the priest would go in with these little golden censers that had hot coals from the altar and incense put on them, and the smoke, the sweet-smelling smoke arising from this uh, incense they would go in before the altar of incense which was just outside of the Holy of Holies and they would offer this incense. They would wave it and the smoke of the incense was representative of the prayers of the people that were ascending to God and God looked upon the prayers of the people as just a sweet savor. Uh, your prayers as they rise to God ascend to God as a sweet savor. And this was sort of a picture of how our prayers ascend to God as a sweet savor unto God. And as he was there offering the incense, there on the right side of the altar, which would have been his left, there appeared 
the angel Gabriel. Zacharias was very afraid at the appearance of the angel. And he said, fear not. For I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And your wife Elizabeth, in her old age, is going to bear a son. And he shall go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Thus the angel is declaring to Zacharias concerning the birth of John the Baptist, he will go in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the children unto their fathers. Now, when Elijah began his ministry, there was a question as to whom he was claiming to be. He was baptizing down at the Jordan River and hundreds of people were coming <clears throat> to be baptized and to hear him. And the Pharisees came out from Jerusalem to inquire, who are you? By what authority are you doing these things? And they said, are you the Messiah? He said, no. They said, are you Elijah? He said, no. Then who are you? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But he denied being Elijah. Now, the angel said he would go in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. When they said, are you Elijah? He said, no. No in the sense that he isn't the complete fulfillment of that prophecy of Micah. And Jesus is here affirming Elijah shall first come. However, he's really already come, but they did to him what they would. They put him to death even as they're going to put me to death. So even as Jesus is coming again to establish God's kingdom upon the earth, before he comes again, Elijah will appear. This Old Testament prophet will appear and will minister <clears throat> to turn the hearts of the people back to God. This is spoken of in Revelation chapter 11 for no doubt the two witnesses that come will be Elijah and one of the other of the Old Testament saints and very possibly Moses because they appeared together on the Mount of Transfiguration and they do represent the law and the prophets and their ministry will be to the Jews during this period of time. So Moses and Elijah, but this issue of Elijah, even as there were two comings of Jesus and John the Baptist in the spirit and in the power of Elijah preceded him to prepare the way of the Lord, to turn the hearts of the people unto God, so he was put to death, and so Jesus said, I will be put to death, but he will come again. Elijah shall first come. And so 
uh, even uh, as there were the two aspects of the coming of Jesus, so there will be the two aspects of the coming of Elijah preceding Jesus. So that is yet to be fulfilled. John the Baptist wasn't the complete fulfillment and thus the denial, no, I'm not Elijah. Yet Jesus said, you know, he, he was uh, in that, uh, but yet he's going to come first and turn the hearts uh, of, of the people unto the Father. So uh, the disciples understood that he was talking to them of John the Baptist. So when they were come to the multitude, now, Lord, it's good to be here. Let's just stay. Build three tabernacles and stay here. But the necessity to come down. And what happened when they came down? No sooner did they descend from the mountain and were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. He is a lunatic. He is sore vexed. And oftentimes he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not cure him. <laughs> no sooner did they come down from the mountaintop experience than Satan meets them really at the bottom of the hill. And you know, it seems like Satan is waiting at the bottom of every mountaintop experience to attack you and to take away the joy and the blessing that God has bestowed. Those times of great spiritual elation and blessing are also sort of times of danger because that's often the time when Satan comes to attack. When God has done a special work in your heart and life, Satan seeks to, to destroy it, to take it away from you. And I have discovered that he's waiting at the bottom of every mountain, every mountaintop experience. And thus was the case. They no sooner get down than this father is coming, kneeling before Jesus and asking mercy for his son that is a lunatic, possessed by an evil spirit that is seeking to destroy him sometimes throwing him into the fire, sometimes throwing him into the water, trying to drown him. And he said, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus, I believe, groaning in spirit. I don't think that this is said in anger, but I, I think it's said in just a groaning in the spirit of just O oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? How long will Satan reign over the earth? We see the results of men whose hearts are given over to evil. 
We see in our society the breakdown, the deterioration. We, we see things that are out of control. We observe the chaos. And we wonder how long can this go on? And many times groaning in spirit, we wonder, Lord, just how long before you take control and establish your kingdom? And Jesus groaning, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and suffer you? And then to the Father he said, bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. The forces of evil, the powers of evil, are subject unto our Lord. Satan has limited power. It is great, but it is limited. And he only can do what God has allowed him to do. But God sets the parameters. You remember he was complaining to God concerning Job that God had set certain parameters. God had put a hedge around Job. Satan couldn't do to him what he was desiring to do because God had placed the hedge around him and Satan was asking God to remove that hedge to let him at Job in order to prove that Job would curse God if the opportunity really arose, if God wasn't blessing him and protecting him. Satan works only within those limitations that God allows. And the powers of darkness are subject unto Jesus Christ and to the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, it is important for us to know that Jesus gave to us the authority over these powers of darkness. They are still subject to the authority of Jesus, but to the authority of the name of Jesus when exercised by the life of a believer. Jesus said that he would give to Peter the keys to the kingdom and whatsoever he would bind on earth would be bound in heaven. And he has given us that authority over the powers of darkness. And they are still subject unto Jesus. Now, the disciples were un <coughs> unable <coughs> to deal effectively with this demon that was in this young boy. It would seem from the scriptures and the teaching of the scriptures that the powers of evil, the demon powers or forces, are ranked in various authorities, some of them stronger than others. 
and they are called principalities and powers many times. And these seems to be the ranking of orders. It's sort of like saying generals and colonels and majors and captains and lieutenants and sergeants and privates. <laughs> and there would be an indication that there are some that are higher in ranking spiritually and are thus more resistant to the authority of the believer. And the disciples took Jesus apart from the crowd, from the multitude, and they said, Lord, how come we couldn't do it? They had known what it was to cast out demons. They had been given an authority and power to do that, and this time it didn't work. Why weren't we able to do that ourselves? Why could we not cast him out? And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief. Now, Mark's gospel gives us a little extra insight into the story. When the father said, you know, help my son, he's a lunatic, he confessed that he was possessed of this devil who was trying to destroy him. Oftentimes he throws him into the fire, throws him into the water and so forth. And Jesus, and I brought him to your disciples, they couldn't cure him. Jesus said, bring him to me. And as they were bringing the young boy to Jesus, this demon threw him on the ground. And he began to writhe on the ground and then lay there as though he were dead. And all of the people, of course, came running up. You know, what's going on? What's happening? As this kid is, is, is thrown on the ground and writhing there on the ground. The demon was manifesting his power over the physical aspects of this young boy's life. It was no doubt quite a dramatic spectacle. And I believe that that's probably what happened when the disciples went to cast the demon out I believe that the demon probably reacted in the physical way, taking the boy, throwing him down, going into these fits, so that the disciples were so awed by the power of the demon to control a person's life that they got their eyes off of the Lord and the greater power that they had in the Lord. And, and thus... Uh, they're, they're, seeing the power of Satan manifested, it, it created sort of an awe of Satan's power and an unbelief in the power that they had. So when they said, Lord, how come we couldn't do this? Jesus said, because of your unbelief. I think that many times as we see Satan's power manifested in our world today, 
that we feel a sense of helplessness. We feel sort of overwhelmed. We see the greatness of Satan's power, the hold that he has on the media, upon the public education system, upon the legislature. And we think, oh, no. Oh, you know, and, and we're so overawed with Satan's power that we forget that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And I, I think that Satan likes to sometimes just sort of go, whoo, at you, you know. And you you know. <laughs> and, and we react in fear, which is, which is the opposite of faith and is a destroyer of faith. So Jesus said it's because of your unbelief. And then he talks to them concerning the potential of faith. Verily I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard, he doesn't take much faith. Faith is a grain of mustard seed. You shall say unto this mountain, remove to the yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. God has given to us that power to move mountains. Faith, just as a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. Here they could not move the demon out of this young man. They were helpless. Lack of faith. It was unbelief. Faith, just like a grain of mustard seed, can move mountains. Now, whether or not Jesus was talking about physical mountains or spiritual mountains is a matter of conjecture among the theologians. I like to think he's talking physically, that in reality, faith has the capacity of moving actual mountains. The interesting thing is that in Luke's gospel, Jesus declares you could uproot a sycamore tree by the roots and transplant it if you had enough faith. And, and so this thing of saying, well, mountains of difficulty or mountains of problems and, and spiritualizing doesn't really... Uh, cross over to sycamore trees. But I never read this, but what I wonder, Lord, how little my faith must indeed be. And realizing that lack of faith, if I just had faith as a grain of mustard seed, I could move mountains. And my prayer is, God, help me. Increase my faith, Lord. Now, faith isn't really something that you can conjure up. It, it comes really as a gift from God. You know, you, you can't just sit there and say, I'm going to have greater faith. I'm going to have more faith. I'm going to really trust this time. I'm not going to fall. Oh, I'm going to really do it this time. I'm really, oh, you know, and you don't hype yourself or psych yourself into it. 
I think many times we're trying to do that. It's, it's wonderful, it's glorious how that in that hour of real trial, in the hour of real need, so often God comes in with supernatural faith in our hearts and gives us that confidence and that assurance that he is working, he's in control. And with that faith, there comes such a peace, there comes such a rest. All of that pressure is taken away because it isn't up to me. It's up to him. I'm pressured because I feel I have to do something. And I feel that pressure of doing something, though I don't know what. But when I realize it's God who is at work, it's God who can do it, then it takes the pressure off of me and I can rest. I don't know what the outcome is going to be. That really doesn't matter. The outcome will be God's will. And that's what does matter that God works out his perfect will in every circumstance of my life. Now, I may not like the will of God. My flesh may rebel against what God is doing. But if I have that kind of confidence that it is indeed God working, his perfect purpose and plan in my life, then I can yield to it, I can accept it, and in so doing, I rest. The real peace and the real rest comes from that complete commitment of ourselves to the Lord. On one occasion, our younger daughter, when she was about three years old, who was the joy and the delight of our life. All of our children have been special blessings of God to us. I look at my older daughter and I think, oh, what a gift from God. And I look at my boys and I think, oh, what blessings of the Lord. And then my younger daughter. We called her sunshine because she just brought sunshine into our older years. When she was about three, she had an exceeding high fever. I sat up all night holding her. She was so lively, so full of energy and vitality, her eyes constantly sparkling, that little brain constantly at work. A delight to be around. But now the eyes were dull. The lifelessness, just limp, hot, miserable. And I was rocking her, trying to be close and be comfort and strength. All night long I sat there holding her praying for her. And towards morning, she went into a convulsion. I thought I was losing her. 
And the thought of losing her was just more than I could bear. But the Lord brought me to a point where I said, Lord, you know that I love this little thing more than I love my own life. And I would gladly give my life for her, Lord. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on faith like a mustard seed, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 17 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD, and our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. May the Lord be with you and watch over you during the week and may God keep you unspotted from this evil world in which we live. As Paul said to Timothy, flee ungodly lust. There is so much to stimulate you in this world in which we live. To start to feed the mind and to lead it into fantasies of unrighteousness and unreality. It's so easy that our imaginations be directed toward evil and evil things. Keep your mind pure. Keep your heart pure. Walk with God in close fellowship. Give no place to the enemy. Walk in purity and righteousness in fellowship with God through Jesus. May you be in the Spirit. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Have you ever thought about this simple phrase, God loves you? This just might be the most important truth you could ever grasp, that God has called you into a loving relationship with himself. Unfortunately, many of us have been brought up to think that we need to earn God's love. In Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything, Pastor Chuck imparts years of wisdom from his own experiences, how he thought he had to work hard and deny his own desires for God to love him. But when he unlocked the secret to God's grace, this changed everything. Come alongside Pastor Chuck to discover an astonishing truth about your relationship with Jesus Christ. That it's not based upon your works, but based upon God's love for you. It's true. Grace changes everything. To find out more and to read a preview, 
visit thewordfortoday.org and click on the link to download Why Grace Changes Everything by Chuck Smith. Or if you would like to order this book in print, call The Word for Today at 800-272-9673.